This is Communes USA. I'm Dan Greenstone in Chicago, along with Christian Goodwillie at Hamilton College. Hey, Christian. Hey, hey, Dan. And Travis Chandler is at the controls. Hey, Travis. What's up, Dan? Well, Christian, Travis, today's commune is called Camp Hill, and I'd never heard of it until we started doing this podcast series. But it's actually one of the largest and longest lasting and most successful, and in my mind, one of the most admirable experiments in the history of communal living. In fact, Camp Hill is more than a commune. It's a global network. There's over 100 of them on six continents. Um, Christian, were you pretty familiar with Camp Hill? I would say I was moderately familiar. I actually attended a conference at Camp Hill uh, Copake in 2019. So I got to see boots on the ground, what life was like, got to eat the food there and meet the people. It was very interesting. Travis, what about you? Just barely heard of them when you said their name just now. (laughs) Uh, You've been not reading my weeks of emails prepping the show, I guess. (laughs) I don't know what you mean. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's how Camp Hill describes itself on its website. Camp Hill is a worldwide social initiative that creates communities designed to include people with and without intellectual disabilities. Um, Well, Christian, we've read a book that we're going to have the author of on in, in just a minute. And I, it was a fascinating book. Um, and one of the things they point out in the, by Dan McCannon is that Campbell is both a commune and a social service organization. And Christian, you're pretty deep in the communal studies world. I'm wondering how people in that world generally think about Campbell. Well, I think your initial point that they're a very admirable group is certainly right on target. I would also echo the fact that they're not a very well-known group. I think I'm probably more in tune with the study of historical communities rather than contemporary communities. And so um, this has been a real revelation to me to learn about anthropos- anthroposophy, learn how to say it, and, uh, and, and the role that the teachings of Rudolf Steiner use in the day-to-day life at Camp Hill. Yeah, the good call on the how to say it. Did you notice <laughs> on the uh, on the Google Doc we shared? Did you notice that I put a phonetic spelling? I was very appreciative of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I think it might be useful for our audience and for us to listen to a little clip from a Camp Hill video that they feature on their website. Travis, you've got that queued up, right? I do. And shall I go ahead and roll it? Please. Here we go. A person with developmental disabilities in today's world is something of a refugee. There's not really space for them in our society. Camp Hill Village is an integrated community where people with and without developmental differences live and work together in an entirely meaningful way. Everyone gets to use their abilities and not be judged to their disabilities. I'm Marion. I've been in Camp Village for 35 years. In my free time, I like to knit in my room. Before Camp Hill Village, I had a very hard time. They gave me a second chance. I'm Oliver. I'm Baker in Camp Hill Village. I like to bake uh, cookies, granola, bread, pizza, Rolls. I've been at Camp Hill for about 12 years. When I'm in Camp Hill, that's the way I want to be. 
there are so many people from all over the world volunteering here. They come here to help. They're wonderful young people with the best intentions, and most of them go away feeling they've been helped. Uh, Christian, you've been to Camp Hill. Do you feel like that clip um, does a good job of giving a sense of the place? Yeah, um, as we'll learn today, there's generally considered two groups of people, villagers and co-workers. And I think it takes uh, a very patient and uh, a, a different kind of person than most of the people in our, our modern society today to voluntarily choose to live among people with developmental disabilities and try to bring out the best in them to the benefit of all. So, and that, that is what I saw at the camp I visited. Yeah. And it, it's really intriguing. Um, there's so much that interests me about this group. Um, I guess one thing that, that strikes me from that video is it starts with the narrator saying that essentially that people with developmental disabilities are refugees who need a haven away from society. And one of the things I'm really curious to talk with our guest about is that in some ways, that notion seems a little outdated. It comes from a time before there was a disability movement. And of course, today, the watchword for folks in the disability movement is inclusion. And Camp Hill really isn't that model, is it? Well, what's very curious about that question, Dan, is that the Camp Hill movement itself began as a movement of refugees, um, people that were fleeing Central Europe during the Nazi period bringing with them the teachings of Rudolf Steiner. And so perhaps they also viewed people with disabilities as refugees from, at that time, an uncaring larger world, a world that was actively persecuting people with developmental disabilities. But you're, you're correct. I think that that's perhaps an antiquated notion even within the Camp Hill movement. But I guess we'll find that out today. Yeah, well, our guest is Dan McCannon, and, and his book is called Camp Hill in the Future. And so I'm really excited to have his thoughts on this and to sort of see what this really wonderful movement, uh, it's kind of at a crossroads, I think. Um, and let's find out more. Let's bring Dan on. As Dan said, we're so pleased to have with us today as a guest, Professor Dan McCannon of the Harvard Divinity School. Dan, can you tell us a little bit about your academic background and, and some of the areas that you've studied, some of your publications? Sure. My broad interest is in religious and spiritual traditions uh, that inspire social change and ecological uh, preservation and commitment. And I've done some very broad work uh, in that area. My book, Prophetic Encounters, is a general history of religion and the left in the United States from the beginning of the 19th century to the present. And I've done some very focused work on particular spiritual traditions. And one of the traditions that has caught my attention is anthroposophy, the spiritual movement begun by Rudolf Steiner at the beginning of the 20th century, which has informed uh, Waldorf schools, biodynamic agriculture, and the network of intentional communities we'll be talking about today, the Camp Hill Movement. And I'll follow up with that, uh, Dan. And I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit more about how uh, Koenig, is that how you say it? Yes, Carl oh, Koenig. <laughs> Koenig and his colleagues, how they arrived at the original idea for Camp Hill. Yeah, so one of the defining features of the anthroposophical movement is the idea that 
people who are following a particular spiritual path should apply it to concrete social problems. So Rudolf Steiner, the founder of anthroposophy, claimed to have various clairvoyant insights into the nature of reality and gave a lot of lectures on extremely otherworldly topics. But he always urged his followers to think about how they could translate his teachings into their work as farmers or dancers or teachers or whatever it might be. But the founders of Camp Hill were interested in taking many of those different practical applications and putting them together in the holistic context of intentional community life. But if there was one particular practical application of Steiner's teaching that they were concerned with, it was Steiner's teaching about work supporting individuals with intellectual disabilities. So Steiner had an early experience as a young man tutoring another young man uh, who had what his parents believed was a debilitating disability, but in fact, through his work with Steiner, was able to pursue a career as a medical doctor. Uh, And Steiner, out of that experience, developed some practices for bringing balance into people's lives, helping everyone, regardless of their particular mix of abilities, to manifest their fullest self. And the founders of Camp Hill, Carl and his wife, Tilla Koenig, had attended some of the early workshops on this approach called curative education that were given by Steiner's close associate, Ida Wegman, and they wanted to make that part of their own lives. Even before founding Camp Hill, they worked in another community supporting children with intellectual disabilities in in Silesia, what was then part of Germany, now part of Poland. After that experience, they moved back to Koenig's hometown of Vienna and gathered a group of other young students of Steiner's spirituality, many of whom were medical doctors and interested in healing work. And that uh, youth group was going great when the Nazis occupied Vienna. So let me let me ask you, Dan, because there was a quote that really grabbed me in your book from Koenig. He said, where Darwin started, Hitler and Stalin continued. So this is all taking shape uh, with the rise of fascism and the evolution of communism into what Stalin turned it into in the Soviet Union. So how were people with intellectual disabilities being treated under those regimes? Yes. So the Nazi regime, as is now well known, was inspired in important ways by the so-called eugenics movement as it had developed in the United States and Great Britain and other places from the end of the 19th century. So uh, Darwin's relative, Francis Galton, uh, was one of the initiators of this idea of eugenics that through conscious choices, people can make a better human race. As we in communal studies know, they were in some ways building on the practices of the Oneida community in mid-19th century New York, which had also sought to 
improve the human stock by deliberate breeding. But at the turn of the 20th century and into the early part of the 20th century, this project focused in a particularly harsh way on people with intellectual disabilities. So you had a lot of legislation coming in to require the forced sterilization of individuals who were deemed uh, deficient mentally in one way or another. And many of the really extreme versions of the eugenics laws that were enacted um, in Nazi Germany were modeled on earlier laws in the United States. And first Rudolf Steiner and then Karl Koenig saw this as a really horrific misuse of the basic insights of Charles Darwin. And this is where things get very murky and complicated. Uh, so I'm going to speak a little bit slowly and, and try to get things at least partly right. So the entire anthroposophical movement saw and sees itself as a form of evolutionary spirituality, very much committed to the larger cultural trend in the 19th century of thinking about the ways in which all reality is continually evolving and changing. Uh, but Steiner understood this as a spiritual reality and not purely a biological reality. And he felt that if you look at it in a narrowly mechanistic biological way, as Darwin did, you miss important things. And he felt the eugenics movement was an example of this very problematic, uh, excessively material version of the generally correct idea of evolution. Where this gets complicated is that there are aspects of the anthroposophical approach to evolution that are probably just as problematic as the Darwinian approach to evolution. Anthroposophy began as a splinter away from the Theosophical Society. And Theosophy had this idea of root races, of different ethnic groups corresponding to different earlier spiritual groupings with different spiritual purposes. And that, just as much as, as American eugenics, was appropriated by the Nazis to very negative effect. So it would be it would be misleading to say that all the virtue is on the side of the anthroposophical society and all the evil is on the side of, of Galtonian eugenics. But at least with regard to the life possibilities for people with intellectual disabilities, Steiner saw clearly early on the dangers of what was happening. And Carl Koenig and the other founders of Camp Hill took that very much to heart in setting out to create a network of communities where people of all abilities um, would be able to live their fullest lives. Well, and I wanted to follow up on that. It's a fascinating explanation of sort of the intellectual background. Um, just in terms of the kind of practical mechanics of how it happened, basically, we're talking about German-Jewish refugees in Scotland, is that right, who, who first created this? 
yes. So the Camp Hill movement as such was created by this youth group, most of whom happened to be Jewish and who wound up being refugees in Scotland. Camp Hill was not the first example of an intentional community inspired by Steiner's ideas about curative education. There was actually one school in England that predated Campell, and there were other schools in Iceland, in Sweden, in the Netherlands, uh, and in Germany. As it happened, the Campellers were particularly interested in making the jump from running schools for children with intellectual disabilities to creating villages where adults with and without disabilities would build life together. And they were also particularly good at founding new communities that would then remain related to one another. Uh, so you have this fairly tight-knit Campell network of today 120 intentional communities around the world. And then the much looser phenomenon of anthroposophical curative institutions. And the German-Jewish refugee connection is kind of a unique part of the Camp Hill story, not so much part of the larger anthroposophical curative education story. And so the, the very fact that this is an intentional community founded by refugees I think leads us to an observation that Dan and I both had from your book, which was that the original Camp Hill concept of people with intellectual disabilities was that they were, in essence, refugees from a larger society that didn't value their humanity or their potential. Is that correct? Yes, I, I would say that, that, um, that part of the magic of Camp Hill was that you had these two groups of people refugees in a different sense, and thus in a position in some ways to be equal partners in the work of creating their community, though I wouldn't want to romanticize that in, in other ways. They weren't always fully successful at being equal partners. And, and this is, I, I think, part of the larger story of communalism, because when I once I got this thought uh, that the Camp Hill story had a lot to do with the refugee experience, it occurred to me that a great many other uh, communal movements have also been started by refugees. And frankly, in particular, refugees from Germany. Uh, so many of the most enduring communal movements in the United States in the 19th century were founded by pietist refugees from Germany. Uh, and in the 20th century context, two other networks of intentional communities that were founded about the same time as Camp Hill are the Bruderhof, German pacifists, uh, Christian pacifists who fled the Nazis, and of course, the kibbutz movement, which actually began a decade or two earlier with early Zionists in Israel but gained enormous steam with the flow of, of vast numbers of refugees during the Nazi period. And of course, the kibbutzim are by far the largest network of non-monastic intentional communities in the world. So we can really see all these movements as kind of siblings in the way the refugee experience 
provides both an impetus and, in a sense, a resource for the creation of communal life. We study communes on this show. It's called Communes USA. And, and it seems to me that just looking comparatively, those first years building the commune can be sort of magical, right? There's there's bonding, there's adversity. Obviously, a place like Camp Hill made it through that. Some communes aren't so lucky and, and perish. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about those first years or, or even first couple decades of their efforts to make this movement work. Yeah, well, there's an idea in Steiner's writings that is particularly helpful for thinking about this. Um, it's called the sociological law. And basically, the idea is that in the early days of any new impulse, community or otherwise, individuals tend to work for the benefit of the group. And as it evolves, that balance needs to shift so that more and more the group supports the individuals in achieving their fullest selves. So the early days of Camp Hill, much like the early days of any enduring communal movement, are very much the first part of that balancing act, very much to do with individuals pouring their whole lives into building up the structures of the community. So you had this youth group that had been in, been together in Vienna, left Vienna separately with a pledge to reunite, found their separate paths to Scotland, and began encountering these extraordinary children, some of whom wound up spending their whole lives with Campbell, uh, who were also refugees, and, and creating something together. Now, Carl Koenig was a classic uh, charismatic leader. He was someone who was not afraid uh, to tell the other person what their destiny was, to tell the other person, I think you're going to go to South Africa and start a new community there, or whatever it might be. Some of the people I spoke to testified to the ways in which he was able to take refugees who had lost a sense of self and purpose and build them back up by allowing them to participate in creating something extraordinary. And he was also a man of towering rages who would fly off the handle if a room was swept was not swept to his exact specifications. And some of the early founders, I'm sure I would have been one of them if I'd been part of the group, ultimately chose uh, not to tolerate that. Some of them went and started a different community, Garfold, also in Scotland, and others, I'm sure, simply went on back to the you know other life purposes, sometimes a little bit scarred by the intensity of Koenig's vision. But for those who stayed, they were able to create something that has been a foundation that has allowed subsequent generations of camp pillars, I think, to enjoy a somewhat more relaxed uh, lifestyle. Dan, can you tell us about um, the two constituencies that comprise Camp Hill community, which you name as villagers and co-workers? 
Yeah. So early on, it was really students and coworkers because the you know the first Camp Hill was a school uh, for children, and it was only when some of those children had grown up and realized society did not offer a clear place for them that the Camp Hillers began planting villages and fostering a new way of life there. And I think the distinction between a student and a villager is something that was really important for the Camp Hillers and was an interesting kind of inflection point. Early on, Carl Koenig identified three guiding practices for the Camp Hill movement. And one of those practices was the so-called college meeting. Uh, This was inspired by Tillich Koenig's Moravian background, so has some affinities with practices in pietist communities. But a college meeting was a meeting where all of the co-workers, so the non-disabled teachers, would get together and they would talk about a particular student. And they would talk about the student in the ways um, teachers and doctors in a conventional uh, care facility might talk about them. You know, what is the student's diagnosis? You know, what is their overall health? That sort of thing. But they would also talk in a spiritual way. They would talk about the student's horoscope. They would talk about the student in terms of the four humors. Is this student choleric or phlegmatic? Anthroposophy is all about holding on to forms of science that have been discredited by mainstream science, but still find spiritual meaning within anthroposophy. So so they're thinking about this student in this very spiritual and holistic way. And what they would discover is, and they would also, after talking about it, would, you know, go home and sleep and and pay attention to whether anything had come to them in their in their dream life that might be relevant to the care of the student. Uh, And what they experienced from this practice was that when they next encountered that student, they would have this very profound sense of the spiritual essence of that person and the, the need to honor the full complexity of that human being. Sounds like theosophical auras that, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that, this, is the, this is the kind of thing that's involved. Now, when, uh, when they made the leap to creating villages for adults, they made the decision that the college meeting that was so powerful in working for children with intellectual disabilities was not appropriate for working with adults. Uh, a child is in formation and is appropriate for the adults that surround that child to play an active role in their formation. An adult is no longer in formation. An adult has achieved something. And even if that something is a little different from other people, that needs to be honored. And it would be meddling in that adult's integrity to do this particular spiritual practice with them. So this is uh, I don't actually talk all that much about this in the book, in large part because I think I was more focused on more recent history. But uh, coming to clarity about the need to differentiate the sort of spiritual work that's appropriate in a school from the sort of spiritual work 
it's appropriate in a village uh, was a very important milestone for Kimpel. I'm curious if you can give us some texture on uh, sort of the day-to-day rhythm of life at a Camp Hill community. You mentioned in the book, there's festivals, there's rituals, sort of a traditional work day. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, maybe I should talk about that in terms of my own experience. When I first encountered Camp Hill, this would have been the summer of 1999. I was a brand new college professor, just finished my first year of college teaching and wasn't quite yet even looking for a research project so much as looking for something interesting to do during the summer. I was very interested in intentional communities, and Camp Hill Village, Minnesota was up the road from where I was teaching, and also up the road or down the road, other direction, from my mom's hometown. So I spent a month with them, and one of the first things you notice if you spend a significant amount of time in a Camp Hill community is just how rhythmical the life is. You live in a house, um, usually anchored by a family with um, several people with intellectual disabilities and several so-called young co-workers who are you know, usually doing a gap year between high school and college. And you have all your meals together. At breakfast, you read a Bible verse. It's the same Bible verse all week. You also read a verse from a little book that Steiner wrote called The Calendar of the Soul, which has essentially mantras, um, little phrases. They don't make much sense in English, and I understand they don't really make that much sense in German either, uh, but you kind of live with them for the whole week. Breakfast has a particular style to it. Usually, everybody in the household has a different cleanup task. So when the meal ends, um, everybody knows what they're supposed to do, and they do it. I always have to tell my students when we visit Camp Hill, uh, don't um, leap up to help clear the table when a meal is over, because you might be stepping on someone else's job. Uh, um, Just be a guest until, until you figure out what your job is in the system. Then there's a work shift from in Canto, Minnesota at the time. I think it was 9 to 1130. Uh, and um, uh, everybody has a different, slightly different schedule. So you might be with the same uh, work crew every morning, but with different work crews in the afternoons or something. My own experience, my work shifts were often in the garden or in the processing kitchen, which was the place where we turned garden produce into jars of pickles and so forth. And oftentimes I also was on the lunch making crew because every house had a team of five or six people whose job was to make a big lunch during the morning. Then lunch comes, it's the major meal of the day and and people share what they've done in their different workshops. So you kind of hear about the gossip from the other parts of the village uh, through that. Usually in a village with Campo, Minnesota would have had seven houses. Usually um, each house has one day of the week when they don't have lunch. So you always have some visitors from the house that's not having lunch that day. So you get to find out about what's going on in the life of that house. And then after lunch, you have rest hour and everyone goes into their room and does their own thing from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. This is the most brilliant thing about Camp Hill. It is the secret to introvert life in intentional community. 
to have a rhythmical rest hour at the same hour every day. And then from 2 to 5.30, you have an afternoon workshop, usually in a different place uh, from where you were in the morning. And then supper is what's called breads and spreads, where you have lots of whole grain um, breads from the local, from the Campbell Bakery, and then some peanut butter, some jelly, some cold cuts, some cheese, oftentimes cheese that's made in the community. Uh, there's all, it's usually at supper that you really see the negotiation between the food preferences of the different people in community. Everybody has their own preferred spread. And then in the evening, there's some cultural life. Now, everything I'm describing is a somewhat more traditional uh, Camp Hill rhythm. Uh, a lot has changed in the 22 years since 1999, and a lot of Camp Hills are not nearly as, as rhythmical as what I'm describing. But at Camp Hill Village, Minnesota in 1999, there was one television in the village. And there would usually be one night a week where more or less everybody in the village would gather in a big room and we would watch something together. And there was, there's actually one movie theater within 25 miles of Camp Hill Village, Minnesota. So there would also be one night a week when we would all get into the vans and go to the movie theater and watch whatever movie they happen to have on Saturday night. Breads and Spreads is made special. It's um, called the Bible Supper, and it is a chance for everybody to share the reflections they've had over the course of the week on the, the Bible verse that we've been hearing every morning. And when your usual supper fare is Breads and Spreads, you just need to add a few elements to make it seem like a festival. And that was kind of the genius of, of Camp Hill Suppers. On Sunday, what happens is a little bit different depending on the Camp Hill and the degree of rootedness in anthroposophy. Some Camp Hill places have their own chapels and they have a service with a priest every Sunday that's very deeply embedded in anthroposophy. And frankly, most of the people don't show up. Other places have a lay-led service. At Camp Hill, Minnesota in 1999, we had a rotation. We would have a anthroposophical service. One Sunday a month, we had what's called a gathering, where one of the houses took responsibility in whatever particular spiritual path those folks uh, were following was the flavor of the gathering. Usually, they were kind of eco-spirituality. And then the other two Sundays in the month, we jumped in the, the vans and went to various uh, churches in the surrounding community. We also had an interesting fellow at Camp Hill, Minnesota. Uh, his name was Brother Killian, and he was a refugee of a different kind. He had been part of a Roman Catholic religious order. And when all the other members of his order died, so this is kind of Shaker-like experience, Christian. Yeah. Uh, when all the other members of his order died, he moved to Camp Hill as a kind of hermit. He lived in a trailer by the chicken coop. He managed the eggs. And for our folks with special needs who were Roman Catholic, he did drive a van um, uh, to Mass every single Sunday. That was an, an option as well. And then we had these seasonal festivals, and the big four are 
Christmas, Easter, St. John's uh, in the middle of the summer, and Michaelmas, the feast of the Archangel Michael in September. Anthroposophical festivals are essentially pagan festivals with all the sort of ecological dimensions you would find in a pagan festival, but with the Christian framework added on. Um, so again, just, just kind of contemplate the strangeness of this, that this was founded by a group of ethnically Jewish refugees who were practitioners of an esoteric form of Christianity. <laughs> that is really interesting. Kind of reminds me of the early Christians themselves in a way. Fair enough. <laughs> um, so a, a follow-up on the word strange, and I always hate to use potentially diminishing or judgmental terms, but you mentioned the practice of reading aloud to the dead for a few days after their deceased. Can you talk about what function that filled? Yeah. So belief in reincarnation is is certainly one of the foundational aspects of anthroposophy. It's a little hard to characterize how that functions. Anthroposophy, an anthroposophical initiative doesn't feel very much like a past life regression group. You don't have people constantly talking about their past lives or trying to figure out the details of their past lives. Uh, but you do have an assumption that the work you do in this life is part of a larger story. It's a larger story that doesn't have strong punitive elements. There's not a sense of my fate in this life is a punishment for the bad things I did in my last life. It's much more an understanding that each lifespan gives you a particular opportunity for growth. And you've chosen certain aspects of this incarnation to accommodate the particular kind of growth you need to do at this time. And there's also an assumption that if you're drawn together with a group of people, as is the case in an intentional community, it's probably the case that you have some shared karma. That This is a new act in a drama that has been going on uh, for quite a long time. And that maybe your roles have been reshuffled. Maybe the person who is a teacher now was a student in previous go around, but that you're working this out together. and. And so there is a strong uh, emphasis on uh, death as a natural part of life and as a transition to the next step in the journey. Uh, so uh, I guess I would say anthroposophists work sort of hard to not be too sad about death, especially if it happens at the end of a long life, but to see it as simply a next step. And the practice of reading to the dead is a way of making that transition more comfortable, honoring that uh, there is a, an intermediate period when one hasn't fully left this stage of the journey and hasn't fully entered the next stage. I can't say that I personally experienced this. I've never been staying at a Camp Hill community at a time um, when someone died. And I'm not sure how vigorous the practice is at the typical Camp Hill. Because the typical Camp Hill today, practicing anthroposophists are a fairly small minority of the people there. But for some of the communities that specialize in elder care, this is a very frequently a repeated practice 
and one that um, is is very anchoring for them um, because as they you know as one person told me as he walks through his space he's continually reminded of the person who died in this room or the person who died in that room and what it meant to walk through that part of their journey with them. One thing I really liked about your book was you do a really nice job of showing how the Camp Hill move, movement has changed over time. And one way you frame these changes is as a story of different generations. And I'm wondering if you could briefly sketch for us how each generation has approached and shaped life at Camp Hill so far. So one of the contributions I was trying to make to the larger field of communal studies in this book is to think about the ways in which each generational transition is different. And I think that's important because so many communal groups only have one generational transition, if that. Uh, And the first generation transition, I believe, is quite different from the ones that come after. If you don't have a certain amount of charismatic leadership in the first generation, you're probably not going to make it to a second generation. But holding too tightly to that charismatic leadership in subsequent generations could cause its own trouble. So um, the first generation, as I think about it, um, uh, consists largely of this founding group, the people who were already a group together in Vienna. And the second generation consists of the people who came to them in the first two decades of Campbell's history, both the children um, with intellectual disabilities and the new co-workers, many of them now refugees from Soviet-occupied East Germany who arrived at the same time. The third generation were the baby boomers because Koenig was really good at telling other people what their life's work was. Uh, And oftentimes what he had to tell them was that their life's work was starting a new Camp Hill very far away from Scotland. So in those early years, you had very rapid geographical expansion uh, with new places in North America, in Germany, in South Africa, in Scandinavia. And in some ways, a lot of people talk about the transition from the founders to the the folks who came as one of sort of increasing rigidity in some ways. Some campaigners had said, you know, the people who took the movement from the founders didn't necessarily have the same confidence of the founders. And so they clung really tightly to the founders' vision. Uh, Koenig himself and other members of the founding circle were really remarkable in their ability to let go. So Kemp Koenig was an incredibly strong leader while he was a leader, but he made the decision while he was still alive to just drop all of his leadership roles and hand it off to other people and not just to one other person, but to different people. You know, he made sure that nobody would be able to hold the same degree of centralized power that he had once held. 
And with each subsequent generation, it's actually devolved further. So in many countries, there was a kind of local founder who held a Koenig-like power, but those people almost never had an individual successor, but the power dispersed after them. So, so in the early, in the first to second generation transition, the spread was to new countries. In the second to third generation transition, the transition that happened with the arrival of baby boomers, it was proliferation of communities within a particular country, often through the creation of new models of communities, what I call the youth guidance or college-type communities supporting people with intellectual disabilities between the ages of 18 and 25, giving them an experience comparable to a college experience. The town communities that were located in not really urban, but more kind of suburban, typically neighborhoods, rather than out in the countryside and the elder communities. And it was a great um, task of will for the second generation, the people who'd arrived as refugees with nothing, to hand their beloved movement on to these long-haired hippies who showed up mostly in the 1970s, some of them having been burned by short-lived hippie communes first, some of them without a strong connection to anthroposophy, but definitely with very different lifestyles and with an inherited sense of privilege, right? These were middle-class young people who hadn't experienced all the privations of of the post-war years. So the real challenge for the second generation, handing things on to the third, was trusting them. And that was the stormy transition. First to second, pretty pretty slick uh, in Camp Hill. Uh, Second to third, pretty stormy, uh, with a lot of communities needing to bring in outside consultants and so forth to help them navigate that transition. And if I can ask you, um, when we talk about any difficulties in these generational transitions, are those mostly felt among the co-workers, or are they also felt among the villagers themselves? Yeah, um, you know, I wish I had a better answer to that. I, I, I don't really have an answer to that for this sort of second to third generation transition that I was just describing, because the narratives that were handed down were very coworker centric. Uh, Camp Hillers took the time to record in meticulous detail the biographies of all the founding coworkers, but they did not take nearly the same care to re- retain the stories of, of the founding group of what became villagers. I think by the time you get to the transition from the third to the fourth generation, this is the one that I observed, where the baby boomers were handing the movement on to those who came after them. And to some extent, that's still ongoing. Did the baby boomers even see themselves as having the right to pass on the Camp Hill legacy. So um, most of baby boomer Camp Hillers did not directly know the founding circle. They had received the Camp Hill vision at second hand. And when they received it, it was very vigorous. They arrived in the 1970s. The movement was growing rapidly. New communities were being started, it seemed like, every day. 
they thought, wow, what an amazing thing we've inherited. By the time they're handing things on to the generation after them, um, the movement is not in decline, um, but it is stabilized in terms of the total numbers of people involved. And the distribution of different types of people has shifted dramatically. So they're not sure they've been good stewards of the precious legacy they've inherited. They're not sure they even have the right to hand this movement on. And the generations after them are desperate for them to claim that right. Uh, You know, I heard many poignant stories about people born in the 70s or 80s or 90s looking for mentors in Camp Hill life. And when they turned to the baby boomers, oftentimes the baby boomer would say, oh, don't talk to me. Talk to so-and-so, this 90-year-old woman living in a little retirement cottage on the community. She's the one who really understands Cantel. Uh, So that was the kind of flavor of that generational transition. And this is the point at at which I think the villagers, people with intellectual disabilities, played a really important role. Because today, and and I think for all the time uh, that I've been visiting Camp Hill places, almost any Camp Hill place you go to, the half dozen people who've been there the longest are going to be people with intellectual disabilities. They are the real memory keepers. They're the ones who are most likely to know the stories of people of previous generations. They are the ones who are really uh, going to help newcomers see themselves as part of an ongoing movement with its particular rhythms. Well, and I wanted to follow up there because you mentioned, I think there's been a real shift in the kinds of people, or at least the kinds of jobs that people have who are working at Camp Hill. And in the book, I learned that the number of life-sharing co-workers, which I gather means people who are committed to staying there for the course of their life, has really declined dramatically in recent decades. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so this is a very complicated story. And on the surface, it might seem that it's a story that is um, unique to communities that support people with intellectual disabilities, because it's often driven by changes in uh, the regulations of the social care authorities. But in fact, it has very close parallels in other sorts of intentional communities. So for example, in the kibbutz movement, traditional kibbutz theme are fully income sharing, um, radical economic equality, Today, the majority of kibbutzim are so-called reformed kibbutzim that are able to pay people salaries for their work and maybe pay you a higher salary if you're doing a more professional kind of work. Uh, So the kibbutzim have experienced exactly the same sort of transition that Camp Hillers have. And in the Camp Hill case, there are a number of different factors. So one factor is that the numbers of non-disabled people who are willing to make a lifelong commitment to Camp Hill has declined. The baby boomers who arrived in the 1970s were very numerous. By the turn of the century, 
people like that showing up um, were far less numerous. Uh, I, campellers tend to think this is because subsequent generations are not as community-minded. We in communal studies know that subsequent generations have been starting new communities in great numbers, eco-villages and co-housing communities and whatnot. So it seems to me more likely that, well, people just would rather be the founder than the third generation of something. So that's one part of it. The other part of it, though, is that the social workers who arrange for people with special needs to be placed in Camp Hill communities are sometimes warier of the traditional life-sharing model. So, for example, one thing that can happen in a Camp Hill is that because all the co-workers are doing their work and having their needs met, and their needs met at a fairly comfortable standard without receiving formal salaries, you might have a single person who's performing a very challenging professional role, perhaps the community doctor, who is making very little claim on the resources of the community, and somebody else, perhaps the community's farmer, who has four children, and they're all going to Waldorf schools and paying Waldorf school tuition. A social worker is not going to be very happy to see social welfare benefits going to pay the Waldorf school tuition of this farmer whose role seems a little bit peripheral uh, to the care task that the social worker is interested in, even if the overall finances of the community are comparable to a place that pays more conventional salaries. That's really fascinating. It sounds like some of the same tensions from Owenite and Fourierist communities in the 19th century with the valuation of labor and you know everyone having a, a claim on the assets of a community, but with different levels of economic input. Um, yeah. One of the concepts in your book that I learned about from anthroposophy that I found so fascinating was Steiner's idea of Lucifer versus, and please pronounce the other name for me. Aramon. Aramon, with Lucifer representing excessive spirituality and unbounded idealism, and Aramon being the material world. And I love that that the Camp Hillers don't like the regulatory bureaucratic state. They don't want to deal with that kind of thing. And I found it fascinating because I, I know that that puts them at odds sometimes with present day advocates for people with disabilities. Is that right? Yeah. So it is, so one of the things that I try to parse out in the book is the complex relationship between the disability rights movement and the way it has transformed approaches to care for people with special needs and austerity. And keep in mind, because the movement started in Scotland, a large chunk of the movement as a whole, and frankly, an even higher chunk of my own research on it, is in the context of the United Kingdom and Margaret Thatcher's policies of austerity hit the United Kingdom at almost exactly the same time as the disability rights movement. So disability rights says everybody has a right to be in the community. Everybody has a right to have full access 
to the goods of the larger society. Paradoxically, this creates a tension between the ideal of care in the community, where community means the larger society, and the ideal of intentional community as creating an alternative society that is less disabling than the mainstream. From the perspective of many disability rights activists, Camp Hill is at best a utopian avoidance of the real work of transforming the larger society so that it's less disabling. And at worst, it's an institution just like all the other institutions where people are dehumanized because it's just inherently dehumanizing spending all of your time with people who are being paid to take care of you. Uh, that, to me, that uh, it was maybe the most interesting part of your wonderful book was sort of seeing how the landscape had changed for the Camp Hill movement. And tell me if I have this right or wrong, but it felt to me like your analysis was founded really in response to Nazism is this humane, wonderful solution for people with developmental disabilities who are literally refugees. And meanwhile, over the, the previous decades, nearly century now, there's emerged this whole disability rights movement that's focused on inclusion. And Camp Hill is really a little bit finding itself in this sort of strange spot of being viewed as regressive and conservative. Do I have that right? I think that's exactly right. Um, it is in the strange spot of being viewed as regressive and conservative, and, and in the strange spot of having to do some really hard spiritual work of understanding what they're meeting at any given time. So this, this new ideal of care in the community, that people should have as much access to the goods of the larger society as possible, dovetails in a troubling way with the politics of austerity, because it's often cheaper to just expect somebody to go out there and be in the larger society, rather than in this very holistic, supportive environment of Camp Hill. So Camp Hillers are constantly facing the dilemma when social care bureaucrats challenge their traditional way of doing things, of discerning, is this challenging challenge coming from a disability rights impulse that we really need to pay attention to and learn from? Or is this challenge coming from the politics of austerity that we really need to resist? In almost every case, it's coming from both. Sorry to interrupt there. I, I thought that was a really striking example in your book where you note that there were some, I don't know if they were social workers or, or bureaucratic regulators who inspected a camp hill. And it was the community was criticized for not having menu choices for, for meals. Can right. you talk about that? Yeah. So it was criticized because the ideal was for the person with special needs to really have agency over every part of their life and to be constantly making choices. And the camp pillars felt that the way this was being applied was that the regulators wanted them 
to treat people like they were always in a restaurant, when in fact, most people don't want to always be in a restaurant. We want to be in a home. But it's also the case that in a lot of Camp Hill places, the food choices do reflect the alternative, usually semi-vegetarian culture that you would find in a lot of intentional communities more than they reflect the perhaps mainstream dietary choices that the people with special needs might prefer if they if they were choosing for themselves. So there was something important that I think the Camp Hillers needed to hear in that regulatory challenge, but there was also something insidious and they had to kind of parse that out. And this is why I find this anthroposophical idea of the two demons, Lucifer and Araman, uh, as really a helpful source of discipline for Camp Hillers. Because every time you think the regulators are the representatives of Araman, the representatives of materialism, of rigidity, you have to be open to the possibility that the problem really is that you yourself are being too luciferic, are, are kind of holding up a spiritual ideal that is not connected to the realities of the material world. That's really fascinating. And on the side to Dan Greenstone, we probably need to do some kind of a heavy metal rock opera based on that concept. <laughs> Loose for an error, man. But that's another project. But well, That's for Travis. I'm not the musician. <laughs> I'm in. Uh, that sounds great. <laughs> now, Dan McCannon, um, you brought up the concept of agency. And one thing I was very fascinated with is given that Steiner urged all of us to see the full humanity and potential behind each incarnated soul regardless of any outward disabilities, does that allow for the possibility of consensual sexual relationships in Camp Hill communities and especially between coworkers and villagers? Oh, interesting. Um, I, I, I wasn't expecting the question to take the, the turn it took at the end. Um, there has been a lot of attention on in the past generation, I would say it's been going for quite some time to be more proactively affirmative about villager sexuality. The most Camp Hills would have kind of active classes and mentoring and so forth, um, understand their adult sexual identity and express it in a way that is right for them. Um, and uh, there, I, I was able to witness during just some brief visits, uh, Heartbeat, Camp Hill Heartbeat in Vermont, the process by which a young couple were affirmed in their whole path from dating uh, to marriage to being allowed to set up their own apartment within the village and experience, you know, a, a sense of together uh, coupleness. I think it was helpful that. The co-workers at Camp Hill and the parents of these two villagers were all on board in supporting this journey. At least I think that's the case. Uh, and so as far as, you know, I only saw it, you know, from a distance, so I might not have seen all the nuances, but it looked to me like uh, a process that was, that was paced just right for the individuals involved. And I think there are similar stories at a lot of 
of Camp Hill Places. I think the idea of a consensual relationship in which one partner has uh, an intellectual disability and the other partner does not, uh, is I've not heard that explored uh, in any Camp Hill. Um, my guess is that Camp Hill coworkers would be very wary about the possibility of overcoming the inherent uh, power imbalances. And of course, the social workers beyond Camp Hill would also likely be very wary of that. Because of course, some of the most traumatic episodes in the stories of some Camp Hill places have involved non-consensual sexual relationships either between adults without disabilities and adults with disabilities, or between adults with disabilities and children without disabilities, children of staff people. Whenever these tragic uh, cases arise, Camp Hillers have to ask some really deep questions. Um, Is our commitment to life sharing where Adults and children with and without disabilities create common family spaces together. Does this make us more vulnerable to those forms of sexual abuse? And if so, is there a way to put safeguards in place that don't require the complete abandonment of all of our intentional community ideals? And typically, the the other tragedy of this uh, is that because historically co-workers monopolized decision-making power in Camp Hill places to the exclusion not only of villagers but also of parents and of board members, typically when a case of abuse occurs, the balance of power shifts simultaneously and suddenly the co-workers are no longer solely in the driver's seat, but board members, parents, social workers all come in with their own ideas about what needs to change. And these have been, you know, some of the most difficult stories uh, in the history of Camp Hill. In the book, I tell one case on the Vida Rosen community in Norway that was actually able to walk through this kind of process in a way where they were able to regain uh, their footing, and after some very wrenching years, were able to restore themselves as a genuine intentional community with some real safeguards in place that had not been there before, but able to feel like there was some continuity. There are also places, particularly recently, a place called Ballytobin in Ireland, uh, just feel like everything we had has been destroyed. Um, I think. We're getting near the end of our questions here. I just have one more, but it's kind of a kind of a long one. But I'm going to try to sum up uh, kind of how I felt after reading your book. So first, I felt quite moved by the Camp Hill movement. And as a student of communal studies, it's it's one of the larger ones. It's one of the longer lasting ones, and it's really done incredible work, as far as I could see. And yet, I felt, having read your summary of where things are, worried about it. And I guess I would recap a couple of factors, you know, that I learned about from your book that would make me worry about Camp Hill. You you mentioned the sex abuse scandals that have 
happened in some places. We've talked about how Camp Hill is now seen by many in the disability community as as regressive and not up to speed with the times. The negotiations with bureaucratic officials that have hampered the sort of traditional philosophy of Camp Hill. The honestly, the declining interest in anthroposophy. Did I say that right? Yeah. Um, which is interesting, but is, you know, definitely feels from a different generation. And then finally, we've talked about the lack of uh, commitment, of life sharing commitment in those gaps being filled by temporary people, gap years, and paid employees. And so I look at that and I go, wow, what an amazing history, but I'm worried about it. And your book is called Campbell in the Future. And I'm wondering if you share how much concern do you share with me about its path forward? Yeah, I certainly feel entirely uncertain uh, about the path forward. I think Camp Hill is of an age where it's not likely to disappear tomorrow. Uh, If you look at the growth and decline trajectory of the Shakers, um, the declining period was a lot longer uh, than the growing period. and. you know, Campbell's growing period actually has been as long as the Shaker growing period. So there's there's a certain kind of amount of institutional inertia, but there is the real possibility that we are now in a long decline or a long sort of draining of the most interesting communal elements. My reason for hoping that that's not the only possibility is kind of twofold. Um, One is what I call creative symbiosis, um, the potential for Camp Hill communities to forge new ways of relating uh, to their neighbors and also to other uh, communal impulses. I have a dream, actually, uh, that Camp Hill will forge some kind of partnership with elements of the co-housing movement, where Camp Hillers will help co-housing communities to be more inclusive of people with disabilities, perhaps by a Camp Hill household moving into a co-housing community, and where some co-housers, in other words, people who want uh, to be part of the rhythms of an intentional community, but do not want to make uh, social care, their life's vocation, will move to Camp Hill places, making them less institutional and more like ordinary neighborhoods. I would love to see some experiments in that vein. And certainly, there are one wonderful things going on already of Camp Hills playing up their ecological mission in ways that are building bridges. The other place of hope um, is something that my own research travels didn't allow me to talk very much about in this book, and that is what's happening in the developing world. Camp Hill places are not springing up very quickly anymore in Europe and North America, though there are still new ones, but there are very exciting new initiatives in many other places. There's the brand new community in Colombia. The community in Thailand, um, these people I've gotten to know at a couple of conferences. And and because they're relating to, there's a new community in Rwanda as well, because they're relating to a movement that is so old and has been 
through so much, uh, these new folks are able to do things in their own particular ways. And I'm just really excited about how they'll be able to selectively take pieces of the Camp Hill heritage and use them in creative ways in their own cultural contexts. Thank you so much, Dan. This has been really fascinating. And I'm very glad that we had the opportunity to read your book because I really knew very little about Camp Hill other than my exposure at the International Communal Studies Association conference when we were on site. And I think there's so many great comparative elements to communities of the past, which is mostly what I focus on, but then so many contemporary issues that we could talk about in the context of Camp Hill. So thank you for your time. Well, thank you all three of you. And it's uh, it's been wonderful to be in conversation and I, I really encourage everybody listening to find out if there's a Camp Hill community in your neighborhood and see if you can arrange a visit and feel the, the rhythm of Camp Hill life directly. Sounds great. How many, just out of curiosity, how many Camp Hills have you been to? Oh, I, I took a count a while back. I would say about 45, 50. Wow. Wow. Incredible. You can usually do a couple in a day because they tend to be clustered together. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dan. This was great. I really enjoyed your book. Thank you.